0: Continuing in our child training series, and, and this is our third lesson dealing with teenagers, and we've got a couple more probably before we wrap this part of it up. Um, begin by just pointing out, what uh, again, a lot of what we do is point out things we already know but need to be reminded of, or we need to think about it from a somewhat different angle perhaps than we thought before. But faith is not blind and and so just as love has to have an object so too faith has an object and the question is faith in what or who everybody has faith every we just don't know enough to know we don't know everything in fact we know very little and so we end up putting our faith in something everyone does and of course as christians we said we put our faith in the lord jesus christ we put our faith in the word of god And then we have to act on that faith. It's not enough just to say that we believe it. We now then have to implement that. We have to step out on that faith. And so I ask you in regard to your children, do you believe, that is, do you trust what God has said in his word regarding your children? Then step out, act on that, stand on his promises, and do the things he's said to do regarding your children. You're going to pray for them, teach them his word, put put them in a community of God's people, uh, Christian education, uh, by your example, instruction, correction, all those things together, God is going to take those and use them. And so I ask, are you actively, this is a particular area I think we tend to fail in, we're busy Uh, If you've given much thought to raising children, uh, you're busy doing the things that parents do taking care of their children, going to work, washing clothes, cooking meals, all those kinds of things, in addition to the discipline and what have you. Um, But do you actively, daily pray for your children? Pray for your teenagers. Because you see, it is their hearts that we're after. And that will take a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. You, with your best efforts, cannot produce what is needed. Now, God will use your efforts, but He uses them the same way He used the loaves and the fishes. In a miraculous way, he takes your ordinary efforts, your ordinary labors, and then when the Spirit uh, comes and takes those ordinary things and uses them in extraordinary ways, that's how things happen. And when, and I think we too often are self-reliant and we forget to pray, we forget to seek the Lord, and to uh, recognize that we, not just our kids, but we are dependent upon him for this to work. And so this doesn't eliminate, of course, the need for your faithfulness in raising your children or your teens, because faith always produces obedience. It always produces good works. And so these are conditional promises that God gives. Uh, A passage uh, you've heard me cite probably a million times, is Genesis 18, verses 17 through 19. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? This is his covenant plan, his his ultimate plan to rescue the world, to bring the gospel to the world. And so he says, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, For I have known Abraham in order that he may command his children to do justice and righteousness, righteousness and justice, and that they keep the way of the Lord, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what was spoken of him. And so, Abraham, I want to bless the world. I want to use your children and your children's children to be a blessing to the entire world. And so, again, the natural question Abraham or any parent must ask is, how are we going to do this? What's the big program? And the answer was, Abraham, go home. Command your household to keep the way of the Lord. Command your household to do justice and righteousness so that I, the Lord, can bring all these blessings to pass. You do this. It's a conditional promise. If you don't do this, don't expect the blessing But you doing that does not produce the blessing by itself. You're not earning the blessing. You're not able by doing that by yourself to produce it. God supernaturally attends to your ordinary things, these ordinary conditions, and He uses them to accomplish extraordinary things. So God has called us to do the commanding, the training, the praying, the loving, etc., and he will do the blessing. Isaiah 65:23 says, "They shall not labor in vain, speaking of parents, uh, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. That's a promise, and there are many promises that God makes to us. Everything we do with our teenagers, from our casual encounters to those crisis moments, must always be guided by our basic commitment to seeing their hearts turned toward the Lord. Now Paul David Tripp in his book Age of Opportunity summarizes what he calls the pastoral approach to parenting teens with five fundamental goals and some practical guidance to go with them and much of today's lesson will be taken from his book and then I've thrown in my two cents along the way. And so goal number one, we're going to look at a couple of the goals today. Goal number one is focusing on the spiritual struggle. Again, it's an easy thing to overlook. We're busy with all the ordinary things, and we forget these supernatural things, which are the most important things at the end of the day. Most teens' lives are focused on material things. Remember, that uh, one of the characteristics of youth is that they can't see very far. Uh, they can't see very far into the future, and certainly much less uh, thinking in terms of eternity. It tends to be much more immediate. Remember, time is gets uh, compressed as we get older. Uh, I've said this before, but if you're one year old and you turn two, that year was half of your life. If you were 99 and you turned 100, that year would be 1% of your life. And so a year becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of your life. And that's why when you're a little kid and you have summer vacation, it seems really long. But then when you're older, you know, 3 months, 2 months just goes by like that. And so uh so as as w- the younger we are, the less uh we have behind us, and therefore, the less the, the uh, we, uh, we can't see as far ahead of us. And part of our job as parents is to help help with this perspective. And so, teens tend to worry. For example, about how they look. Uh, they're crushed if someone mocks their outfit. Um, they want to be accepted by peers, and they despair over rejection. I don't have any friends. I'm never going to have any friends. And You know, that could be on Monday and by Friday they're hanging out with their friends and then back again next week because their perspective tends to be much more limited to the moment and it's hard for them to imagine ever not being in that situation. And so they're possessive about their stuff and they talk dramatically about what looks or tastes uh, appealing to them. The unseen spiritual world can seem unreal to them. The physical world is present, and it seems permanent. It doesn't seem to be passing away, uh, and that's partly because I guess for most of them, their joints don't hurt yet when they wake up in the morning. Uh, They don't know that that's coming yet, but it will. But the reality is, of course, that the physical world is passing away. Let me say that again. The reality This isn't an alternative reality. This is reality. They sometimes live in an alternative reality because their perspective is not as broad as it will be, and you're helping them to to gain. Remember what Paul says. This is the inspired, infallible Word of God that declares the truth, and here's the truth. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen, for the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Parents, our job is to help them see what they can't see. To help them see new things. To see further, deeper, broader. And so Paul's focus is on the unseen. He isn't so invested in a physical world that is passing away. Jesus, of course, tells us, for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world? You have a great career, a great education, a big house, a nice car, all the things of this world. What shall it profit you if you gain that but lose your soul?" So the spiritual thing is the most important thing. And John warns, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. And so one of our main jobs as parents and adults is to give them a true perspective on life and eternity. But two things have to happen. Uh, two things. There are two things that keep us from teaching our children to fight and engage in a spiritual struggle? First, we ourselves are often more worried about the physical world than we are the unseen world, especially when it comes to our teenagers. And so we ourselves don't have the right perspective. We're not thinking in terms of this spiritual war, this spiritual struggle. We're too often concerned, for example, about their careers and their scholarships and uh, you know, those kinds of things than we are their souls or we are their future marriages or their future child rearing. And are we, you know, you, again, you're raising your children's grand, uh you're raising your, your grandchildren's parents. What kind of marriages do you think they need to have? Well, then that's the kind of marriage you're going to need to have. And so we, again, often get sidetracked and focused on the wrong things, the sports and the music lessons and even, even, you know, what's going on at school. Those are important things, but they're not the most important things. Those are all things that are there that should be serving this greater end, but we lose sight of the greater end, and then those things become become ends in themselves. So, for example, and we... I think I'll have a separate lesson on this, but for example, as you're considering college for your kids, your teenagers, what is the most important thing or things, what are the most important things when it comes to selecting a college? Well, you can think about that. I'll have a whole lesson on that. But we often get the wrong things plugged into, in that answer. And so we think because it's closed, uh, has a great football team or whatever, uh, we think those are the most important things. Who's teaching our children, what they're teaching our children is way down the list. And yet those are the most important things. Second problem we have in helping our, our teens have this eternal perspective, is that we have our own cultural misunderstanding. Because spiritual warfare is not like the movies. It is, is right in front of us all the time and everywhere. At the end of the book of Ephesians, we'll, we're getting there eventually in the sermon series, Paul's introduction of the subject of spiritual warfare, putting on the whole armor of God, um, is not a new subject that he just tacked on at the end of the book of Ephesians. Rather, it comes at the end of this epistle and it summarizes everything else he's had to say about doctrine, about life, about light and darkness, about uh, communion with one another, about husbands and wives and children. All of that is part of the spiritual warfare. And so you have to know that there is this kind of spiritual war, parents before you can fight it, and therefore, before you can help your teenagers fight it. Let's talk about the qualities of a spiritual warrior. If your teens don't have these qualities, I'm especially speaking right now for those who currently have teens or you're about to have teens in your household, if, you don't, if, they, if your teens don't have these qualities, then you have some serious, serious work to do. If you send them out the door unaware and ill-equipped, then do not expect a good result. The world will chew them up and spit them out. It is your job to, as as we read in Deuteronomy, to diligently teach them the Word of God can't be casual, can't just take them to church, can't just drop them off at school. Your job, your personal job, is to diligently teach them the Word of God. And so it's to equip them by your words and example. And so I'm asking you to give an honest evaluation of your teenagers in these areas that I'm about to mention. It's not enough to write things off with, well, you know how teenagers are or to simply think this is just a phase. Let me tell you, I've lived long enough to know that uh, certainly a number of teenagers come through the teen years in great shape, but quite a few crash and burn. They may not crash and burn by 18 or even 20. It may be 30 before the crash comes. But what is happening while they're teens is is a predictor of where they're going to be when they're 30 or 40. These are not unrelated things, and so you really need to pay attention. So here they are. First, you should ask, is, is there in your teen a heartfelt, internalized fear of God, an awareness of God's presence in their lives? Proverbs 1, 7, and 9, 10 tell us that this The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. That's the starting place. It's the ABCs of wisdom. And they're going to need wisdom and knowledge. So is that fear there? And if not, what are you doing to help them have it? That is, a respect for God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. uh, And there's no God before his eyes. And so therefore... He lives in the moment, as though nothing he does really matters down the road, certainly in eternity. And so, if there is little or no fear, no respect for God, then ultimately, ultimately, anything goes. Second is their submission to authority. Teenagers are known for their rebellion but your teenager should not be known for that. Romans 13:1 through 2, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. How do you handle your teens' complaints against authority? How do they see you and hear you handle your own complaints? Never forget that there are always bigger lessons being taught than the one that's right before you. What, and what goes around comes around. If you teach them the way to handle authority they don't like is to gripe and complain and, and to uh, you know show disrespect... Then don't be surprised when that comes back on you. When you're not around, that's how they'll deal with you, and that's how they'll deal in in the rest of their situations in life with bosses and spouses and parents, not parent, but uh, other relatives or anybody else that has authority. Our view of authority, you see, ultimately reflects our real view of God. That's what the text says, right? All authority is of God. And so he who resists legitimate authority is resisting God. God, I don't like the fact that you put this other person in charge of me. You don't know what you're doing. I'll do it myself. Remember, that's the fundamental problem we all have, right? It's the fundamental problem Adam and Eve had. We don't want God telling us what to do or his agents telling us what to do. Willing submission to God's ordained authorities is a critical quality if our teens are to win their spiritual battles. It's a way of self-denial and recognition that I don't always get my way, and and uh, my way is not always the best way. Moreover, real godly submission means that I have to learn to get happy about it and live in contentment. We all need authority over us because it's good for us. At least God thinks so. Third, is there a separation from the wicked? Teenagers who fear God will want to be with other teenagers who fear God. And so if they're hanging out with people who have no respect for God, who disregard God, who who think God is irrelevant to their lives... Your teens, friends, are the best barometer as to their spiritual condition and readiness for life. That is the best barometer. Do not be deceived, Paul writes. Evil company corrupts good habits. Their friends will influence them. Fourth, is there a knowledge of Scripture? Again, I already alluded to this in Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-9, about where God says, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, parents. So that's the starting place. If you don't know the Bible, if you're not studying the Bible, if it's not in you, you can't get it in them. You cannot. That's the starting place. And if it's in you, then it's got to come out of you, and so that they hear you when you sit down and when you rise up and when you walk in the way, it's everywhere all the time. That doesn't mean you're walking around Quoting the Bible literally, uh, constantly in that way. But the way you speak, the way you think, the way you see the world, the way you evaluate problems. If a problem comes up, for example, in your house with your teen, I, I, I assume you're going to give some instruction and direction. But how about praying with them? Say, so if they're in trouble, I'm mad at them. Okay? I'm angry. Well, be angry and sin not. You can say, you know what, what you did was really foolish, and it really makes me angry because we've been over this 15 times, but I love you, and we need to sit down and have a conversation and talk about how we got here and why you're here again. And before we do that, we're going to pray together because we're going to bring God into this conversation. It's not going to just be me and you, it's going to be the three of us, or the five of us consider the Trinity, okay? And we're going to ask His help. And, and you're going to pray too, because you're a Christian, right, son, daughter? So let's just have a short prayer, and then we'll start the conversation. And by praying, we're acknowledging what? The presence of God, the f- and which brings the fear of God into it, right? So we're teaching them to fear God. And by praying, we're acknowledging that we're both dependent upon Him. We're children. We're creatures, and we're needing him and needing his grace and his wisdom. It also tends to help us as parents to keep our perspective on eternity and that what matters is not just the thing in the moment, but what's ahead. There's so many things that happen when we pray together, and then we have that conversation and we show respect for one another. Son, what were you thinking when you did that? What should you have done? instead of what you did. No yes and no answers, okay? Don't ask questions that can be answered yes or no. Ask questions that have to be answered with a thought. Okay? And what are you going to do next time when you're faced with a situation? Diligent teaching is what's required, and if you uh, have not, then you're... uh, Excuse me. And if you have not and are not doing this, then please... Don't be surprised at what comes next. You'll soon be visiting doctors and psychologists and the Internet to try to solve the problems that the Word of God has already addressed. The Psalms are not just being poetic when they say, uh, regarding the Word of God, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Biblical wisdom Is the only sure guide to life. Uh, Tripp says they must, speaking of teens, they must be able to look at themselves, life, relationships, possessions, morality, leisure, government, learning, knowledge, marriage, family, the past, the future, love, hate, character, maturity, right and wrong, good and evil, success and failure, and everything else they will encounter in life from the vantage point of scripture they must be able to do that and they can't do that if you can't do that fifth is remember evaluating your the readiness of your teen to, to fight the spiritual battle is there a biblical self-awareness teenagers are very aware of how others respond to them they are aware of how they look and feel they're not so much aware of their own hearts. Try pointing out a wrong attitude or even a behavior. uh, And that and it is not uncommon that a teenager will respond by being hurt, uh, feeling that they've been falsely accused, or singled out. Teens who have good biblical self-awareness will not only respond well to their parents and other authorities, they will actually Seek it out. That ought not be odd and rare for your teen to come and say, Mom, Dad, I need some help. I got a, I've got a dilemma. I don't know what to do. I need somebody to help me have some wisdom in this area of my life. I'm struggling. And if you've created channels of communication there, that ought to happen. Teens who have a good biblical self-awareness then uh, will seek it out. They will be aware of their spiritual weakness and welcome help. They won't excuse, defend, argue, or shift the blame when wrong is pointed out. So if your teen is doing that, you've got some work to do. That's an indication that they're not ready to step out into this world. They will be eaten up. Romans 12:3. They will not think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. If your teen is cocky, I don't care if it's on the basketball court or in the classroom or just out with their friends, if they are cocky, then you've got a problem. They think more highly of themselves than they ought. It's interesting, I was looking sometime back at a study of colleges and kids who drop out And it was interesting to me that Harvard has one of the highest dropout rates. Think about how it's hard to get into Harvard. you got to be pretty smart to get in. And so you got a bunch of smart people going to an Ivy League university. Why do so many drop out? Because they're used to being the smartest person in the room wherever they came from, and now all of a sudden they're in a room with a whole bunch of other people that are smarter than them. And this, that's what this article was pointing out. They're often disappointed. That it wasn't what they expected. They didn't, now for the first time, they realize I'm not the smartest person. There's always somebody smarter than me. And that's humbling. And we don't like to be humbled. And so we'll go somewhere where we can be the, the big fish. And so, again, that's a problem. By the way, there are many adults who continue to act like immature 15-year-olds, when it comes to self-awareness and taking responsibility for their actions or their inactions. Self-awareness involves an accurate and practical knowledge of personal areas of weakness, of temptation, and sin. So ask your teens, what are your areas of weakness? Can you tell me? What are you not good at? Where do you struggle? And remember, sometimes the thing they're good at, they're too good at. Sometimes their strength is also their weakness. Yeah, you are good at that, but sometimes you don't know when to shut up. Yes, you think a lot, but you talk a lot too. And what does the Bible say about that? Help them in these areas. And so, one of the most helpful things we can do for them spiritually is to help them see further ahead than they can see on their own. So that's the, the first goal is spiritual warfare. And the second we'll talk about today is developing a heart of conviction and wisdom. A heart of conviction and wisdom. Andy Crouch, in the book I recommended last week called uh, The Tech Wise Family, Uh, in one of his chapters, speaks about courage and wisdom, which I think is similar to conviction and wisdom. Those are the two things we want to give our children, uh, wisdom and courage or conviction. And so there are two ways we can divide the issues our teens will face, and we want to look at these here. The first are boundary issues. These are the issues to which God has plainly spoken, and when faced with a boundary issue, The teen does not need to pray for wisdom. If you've taught boundary issues, he already knows exactly what to do when that presents itself. And second are wisdom issues. With these, there is no direct, thus saith the Lord, but to which Scripture does speak principally so that uh, we can live wisely. And so as parents, of course, we can't give what we don't have. And so we need to know the boundaries, and we need to know what the wisdom issues are. So let's look at each of those separately. So boundary issues, and let me say boundary issues, you start establishing those very early in your child's life. And then, again, with little children, those boundaries are going to change because of their circumstances. So some of those boundaries will be things like, no, you can't touch that. No. So the word no is really important. Very early. But those boundary issues are going to change because their world gets bigger as they get older. And so if if they're just operating in your living room, uh, that's one thing. But as they move out and, and, and they're further and further away, helping them know and establish those boundaries is going to be very important. And so these are situations that involve, again, the plain commands of Scripture. So speak the truth, for example... Honor your father and your mother. Do not steal or commit adultery or fornication. No unclean words proceed from your mouth. Zero. None. Absolutely none. That's a boundary issue. The Bible is spoken. We know what to do. Uh, So these are clear right and wrong situations. In order for them to honor God, they will need two things. First, they need to know the commands of Scripture. And second, they will need some personal conviction or a heart that is committed to doing the will of God regardless of the consequences. That's the courage part. If I do the right thing, my friends are going to make fun of me. doesn't matter. I'm going to do the right thing, whether my friends make fun of me or not. And if I lose a friend for doing the right thing, they weren't my friends in the first place. I'm willing to pay that price because I have a conviction of my, in my heart of what's right and what's wrong. And so, convictions are more than preferences because preferences change with desire. Convictions are permanent. Preferences are are based on the emotions of the moment. Convictions demand faith. There are six characteristics of biblical convictions. Number one, they are always based on a study of and submission two, and application of Scripture. Number two, they are always predetermined. First, by God. It's just a matter of simple obedience. God said, don't do that, and I don't. That's obedience. That's submission. But also, second, by us, uh, it's predetermined long before the situation ever shows up. I'm going to the store, and I'm not going to steal when I get there. I don't have to get to the store and decide, "Oh, I want that. Should I put it in my pocket?" I already, because I know what God's word says, already made up my mind and my heart. That's just not something I, I do. I don't even consider that. Third, convict- biblical conviction does not change with the circumstances. It is an internal commitment, not external pr- no external pressure of people or situational circumstances. Will change what I do. There is a clear line that I don't cross. I've quoted this song before. I'm going to read it again uh, from Susan Ashton called There Is a Line. It's hard to tell just when the night becomes the day, that golden moment when the darkness rolls away, but there is a moment nonetheless in the regions of the heart. There is a place, a, a sacred charter that should not be erased. It's in the marrow. The moral core that I cannot ignore. Within the scheme of things, well, I know where I stand. My convictions, they define who I am. Some move the boundaries at any cost, but there is a line I will not cross. No riding on the fence, no alibis, no building on the sands of compromise. I won't be borrowed and I can't be bought. There is a line I will not cross. Ask the ocean where the water meets the land. He will tell you it depends on where you stand. And you're neither right or wrong, but in the fathoms of the soul, that won't ring true. Because truth is more than an imposing point of view. It rises above the changing tide as sure as the morning sky. And so, biblical conviction is inflexible. It's non-negotiable. There is no compromise. It is bold. Rationalization that God, or excuse me, realization that God, who made the world and who made me, controls the moment, and He has spoken. There is no safer place than to be actively doing His will. True conviction results in courageous acts of faith. And then biblical courage is always lived out. If it isn't lived out, then it isn't conviction. It will clearly show in the daily decisions that our teens make. And so a person without biblical convictions doesn't have an internal restraint system. Remember, our goal is to govern them, but to teach them to govern themselves under God. When these restraints are removed, of course, they will act very differently. So that's conviction. And then understanding wisdom issues. Most of our time is spent grappling with wisdom issues. The believer, having decided to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, willingly lives within the boundaries a basically obedient life, if you will, but a life in which there are countless situations in which wisdom is needed. In other words, a checklist isn't going to work all the time. Wisdom is the application of principles and perspectives and themes of Scripture to the circumstances of daily life. In those cases, there is no clear, thus saith the Lord. Nevertheless, we do know that Scripture speaks to every area of life, whether directly or indirectly, and the goal is to have our teens to be able to go out into the world and live wisely and not as fools. And so here are some strategies for developing a wise heart. First, we should see the, different, uh, the difficult problem situations that come up as God-given opportunities to develop a biblical mindset in our teenagers. Problems are there because God, who loves us and who is in control, is accomplishing His purpose in them. You remember in James one, where it says, starting verse two, "My brother encountered all joy when you fall into various trials." That would include trials with your teenagers, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That'll be parents, your faith as well as your teenagers' faith. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. Remember, parents, God's not just teaching your teenager and sanctifying them and making them Christ-like. He's using your teenagers and their problems to sanctify you and make you more Christ-like. That you, that, so you're both, having, you're both being tested, perhaps in different ways in any given moment. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Remember, though, that that wisdom almost always comes in the form of a trial. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. It's a test. It's a test for them. It's a test for you. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Are you going to trust God? Are you going to pray? Are you going to go to the Scriptures? Are you going to do the next right thing? That is what's being tested. Number two, resist making the decision for your teenager. That's the temptation. Remember that idol of control and success? I don't want my teenager to embarrass me. I've got to maintain the control. I will just simply tell them what to do and demand that they do it. We are raising adults, and adults have to make decisions. Teaching your teenager how to make wise decisions is far more important than simply regulating their behavior. To do this, you will have to deal with your own fear, parents. You too will have to learn to trust God. Number three, draw out the heart of your teenager. Proverbs 20, verse 5, Counsel in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Ask open-ended questions that help them communicate what they really think. Resist doing all the thinking and all the talking. Resist turning a discussion into a lecture. Resist pointing fingers and loud voices unless you want them to avoid you in the future. Perhaps they're silent for a reason. This is not how our Heavenly Father deals with us. Number four, be persistent. Don't settle for grunts and groans, no eye contact, silence, or yeses and nos that are given without explanation. Make sure they understand that the point of the conversation is not simply about catching them in the wrong and punishing them, but also about helping them identify uh, and do what's right. Number five, help them to determine whether they're dealing with a clear boundary issue or a wisdom issue. Okay? Discuss the difference between the two, and as you're doing it, show them respect that I mean you have to approve of what they've doing showing respect is treating them as uh, what they are gifts from God to you to train and shape and mold and six don't try to tell your teenager in one conversation everything you've ever learned um, the goal is not to de- demonstrate the breadth of your own wisdom it is to teach them to live wisely i assure you you will have other opportunities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you have given us everything we need to do the job that you've given us to do as parents. Lord, you know we feel overwhelmed, but oftentimes we're overwhelmed because we have not taken advantage of the things you've given us. And we're struggling to do it on our own or to make it up as we go. So Lord, work in us first, train us, teach us, discipline us to be godly and mature and wise so that we can impart that to our children and help them. Help us to love them and to sacrifice for them that they might grow up and make great advances and go beyond us and be great godly men and women to your glory and for the good of the world and to your your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen.